The Falling Middle Cast is a spin-off series from the creators of Mars on Life. This series provides review and commentary of Barbara Ehrenreich's Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class. Since this series analyzes the text and provides a critique on class in America, this is not a comprehensive audiobook and follows all copyright claims. Now, back to the show. Welcome, listeners, to a very special mini-series produced by the creators of Mars on Life. This is the Falling Middle Cast. I am one of your co-hosts, Ryan Mancini, and I'm joined with me, as always, with, by, for, to, <laughs> something. I, I, love the, uh, I love the energy. Such high energy. My name is Sebastian Shug, and I know what you're thinking, dear listeners. Another mini-series. Well, it's probably a bit of a misnomer that you state that off the bat because I'm not anticipating this series to be mini in length whatsoever. You approached me with an idea that at face value thought was just as equivalent to an audio recording of a fourth grade book report. And then you actually told me what we were going to be discussing today. We have, each of us, a copy of Barbara Ehrenreich's Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class. This was a book that was unfamiliar to me. Uh, just a bit of a preface, uh, you know, sort of anecdotal. Um, you actually got me this for the holidays mm -hmm. and was deliberately making every single attempt to read it alongside co-reading other books on my shelf that I still haven't got through. <laughs> but once you proposed this idea to me, I made every single deliberate attempt to hold off on reading it because I really wanted this miniseries, this experience that we're going to be going through, um, something unique and something very much uh, first impressional. If you want to kind of go into what we're what we're going to be talking about, that's fine. I know first pilot episodes of anything generally have some sort of overview and <clears throat> may sound shaky in nature, but mm -hmm. uh, all in all, Barbara Ehrenreich's Fear of Falling. We'll be reading it. We'll be discussing it. We'll be commentating on it. I'm going to try not to sound like NPR as much as possible because I know <laughs> usually with audiobooks, you're, you're taking a more somber slower, more metaphysical, more metaphorical approach to your delivery, which is a far cry of what we've been used to on every single episode we've produced ever. So, <laughs> Although I will say there have been many times, uh, and when I say many times, I just remember the one time uh, when a friend of the show, Pete D. Camarillo, heard one of our, our, one of our outros from Ours on Life and I think just the way I enunciated, you know, what the outro was, and I think this is for see, we're, we're already going to get into a tiff here. You know, do, do you announce words or do you announce them? I'm kidding. <laughs> you, well, you it was, pronounce it? it? <laughs> Enunciate. Uh, Enunciate? 
I, I'm kidding. I'm just My goodness. like here. Uh, right. Go on. Where he, he, he heard it and then at one point had to text me, okay, NPR. You know, like <laughs> telling me, like, I know what you're doing here, buddy. And to be fair, I mean, I mean, obviously it, it's natural with myself. I know it's natural with you. Like we have our own natural ways of speaking right. um, when we're cognizant that we're recording something and also we're doing it in just just individually you know solo so whether it's been you know obviously i've heard almost every one of your creepypastas on youtube so there is definitely <laughs> that like there's the range definitely. there is the range and with myself it's similar and again maybe it's because i've listened to so much radio and when i say listen to so much radio just different takes on how to be on the radio anyway uh-huh. This isn't about radio. Uh, I feel like I'm already going to be doubling back on my on my statement because while I don't want to be sort of this one note atonal narrator, mm -hmm. this is more in line to what I've been reading on YouTube for the past year, year and a half, two years going mm. on. So you may see a little bit of a <clears throat> lower energy coming from me. Of course, when it comes to commentary, I'll I'll flick that switch. As far as introductions go, I think ours are pretty much complete, if there's nothing else. I think one other thing I, I would quickly mention, and I'll do my best to make this very, very quick, just because I, I think you'll have a lot of listeners wonder, well, who is Barbara Ehrenreich? So, a little bit of background on her, uh, and listeners, honestly, I think, if you wanted a full, fleshed-out understanding of not only who she was and her... Um, you know, just all the books she's written and her career, um, her work in journalism, I highly recommend Know Your Enemies episode on mm -hmm. her, um, which they recorded not too long after she died, which was on September 1st, 2022. Um, she was a journalist. She was an author. Uh, I would say she was, and I think she would too, um, she was a lifelong dissident and very much, very much a, a, an, as American as you can get. Uh, from the standpoint of, you know, her family was originally from Butte, Montana. Um, her parents were pretty pretty outgoing in all of the ways that I guess you would typically imagine with that sort of American gumption of, you know, the working man and the New Deal and, you know, making a living and, and kind of that, that rough-and-tumble life that was always questioning authority. Um, one small short paragraph that I'll actually very quickly read that I was actually reading just before we recorded um, from a collection of essays that I just picked up. Um, one of the first questions in a test of mental competency, and this is regarding her father, is who is the president of the United States? Even deep into the indignities of Alzheimer's disease, my father always did well on that one. His blue eyes would widen incredulously surprised at the neurologist's ignorance. Then he would snort in majestic indignation. Reagan, that dumb son of a bitch. It seemed to me a good deal. Two people tested for the price of one. Yeah, she was a phenomenal writer, essayist, journalist. She wrote several books, including um, probably her most notable, Nickel and Dimed, which sort of was a confluence of the sort of her two main focus, uh, I guess, foci. That's the, if I'm getting the pronunciation for that math term right. Um, but uh, primarily about uh, the state of women 
in America and just work and labor and what it means to be just working in this country, especially if you're living at the poverty level. Um, and she literally went undercover to work as um, a cleaning lady. She worked at a diner. Uh, she worked at Walmart. And, you know, this book came out in the early, like, I want to say 2000 or 2001. And it really does still hold up. I mean, obviously the numbers on, well, arguably the minimum wage numbers still are still the same because they haven't changed. <laughs> um, Adjusted just, for inflation. I mean, no. yeah. Um, <laughs> As if that helps. I mean, she was prolific in that. You know, she also wrote Bait and Switch, which I haven't read, which... Let's just say, uh, listeners, if you want a good idea on Bait and Switch, the book, uh, just listen to a bunch of our episodes from early on in Season 3 of Mars on Life, where we basically talk about how, hey, we're educated, we got out of college, but the jobs just aren't there. And the jobs also don't seem to be wanting us or looking for us, and there's all this jargon in our way. Well, she basically covered that a good 20 years before you and I were... Uh, you know, hemorrhoiding over it on air. So, um, and, you know, up, up to this point, I've read multiple books by her. You know, I've got the essay collection in front of me with the wonderful title, The Worst Years of Our Lives. Um, if, if you pay attention to a lot of her titles, they, you could definitely tell that she was able to take a lot of just modern day phrases and use them as bluntly as possible to describe what she was writing about. I mean, one of her contemporaries who I've talked about often on Mars on Life, Christopher Hitchens, could always coin a phrase like, you know, prepared for the worst, blaming the victims, uh, the missionary position, which was about Mother Teresa. Um, but with Ehrenreich, she was really, really cognizant on just making it abundantly clear about, you know, okay, I'm going to write a book about dance and, you know, revelry and celebration and how that in of itself is an act of, no matter how small it is, is an act of revolution. Yes, she was definitely a woman of the left. I would say she was to the right of Mike Davis, but absolutely to the left of Christopher Hitchens. Um, and both men recommended her throughout her career. Um, so she's outstanding. And I think, you know, anyone, anyone and everyone out there should absolutely go out and pick up one of her books. What we're about to read is, funny enough, actually came back into the zeitgeist along with an essay that she had written. Because I should note, too, she was an academic. I think she did have a PhD, and she, had more, she actually had more of a background in science. And somehow that led her down the path of being, you know, an outspoken feminist, uh, dare I say, you know, socialist feminist uh, provocateur. And, you know, she, she still maintained this air of professionalism and, you know, the New York Times lauded her and she would put herself in the category of the very people we're about to talk about in this book, the professional managerial class, which is a topic that came back up in recent years. And it did get her into a little bit of trouble on Twitter because people were screaming at her about it. And then I think after that, she was like, all right, deuces, I'm leaving Twitter. So <laughs> she, um, I mean, she was, and, and I should note too, I mean, on top of just all these other random things about her, you know, 
about her career. I mean, she wrote one novel, Kipper's Game, which I'm also going to check out. Um, but also, she she was a wonderful satirist with a lot of her writing. Like, she could write these very academic books, including what we're about to check out, but then just lacerate the likes of Nancy Reagan and, you know, Walmart and uh, uh, what was the... She has one essay in one of her collections, um, one of her essay collections that talks about the uh, Republican congressman who was caught having sex with a man in an airport, and this very Republican congressman was notorious for being anti-LGBTQ, so I think his name was Larry Crane. I only remember that because I think Bill Maher made fun of him back in the day. Full disclosure, go read Barbara Ehrenreich, people. She's got my endorsement. And I think, too, and I... I, I want to add this too before we start is you know regrettably I've had to categorize her so that you have an idea more of an idea on who she was but honestly her work doesn't come off as very polemical it really does come off more like a diagnosis and certainly with fear of falling like there were so many times throughout season three of Mars on Life where I would hear what you were saying and I kept thinking to myself isn't there like a book out there that talks a little bit about what Sebastian's talking about and then finally I got to the point where I started listening to more people in media that I typically listen to mention this book, mention Aaron Reich. And I was like, all right, I might as well finally bite the bullet and check it out. And I loved it. it honestly, it was one of my favorite books of 2022. To this day, I would argue it's probably my favorite book of hers. I'm excited for this. I don't know if you have any response or reaction to what I... You uh, pretty much laid it all out there. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like most of the episode is going to be a foreword, but we're not reading the foreword. We're reading that. That was our foreword. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I know that you stated, oh, yeah, we 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 can read it. But let's begin with the introduction. Um, I felt like that capped it off re relatively nicely. So and I got my I, copy so I can I can definitely read along. I'm very much curious as to uh, how this is going to fulfill the arc that you've predetermined for me. So um, I figured we'll just kind of do this a little bit free-flowing, um, I guess, popcorn reading. Is that what you say in elementary school, where you kind of just pass it off with random parts? Um, I read relatively quickly, and I don't want to say, like, with passion, but you can hear the you can hear the eclecticness in my voice. So, right. um, I mean, if there's nothing else, I'll, I'll start it if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, if if you want to do popcorn reading, that hey, yeah. that works for me. I okay. Believe me, I miss those days. So, <laughs> <laughs> introduction, the class in the middle. This book, surprise, surprise, is about the middle class. I'm also going to ad lib. Okay, <laughs> it doesn't okay. really say that. More specifically, the professional middle class and its journey, intellectual, political, and moral, from the '60s to the '80s. Even in the names of these decades, they seem to tell a story, one that begins with a mood of generosity and optimism and ends with cynicism and narrowing self-interest. And that, in the largest sense, is the theme of this book, the retreat from liberalism and the rise in the professional middle class of a meaner, more selfish outlook, hostile to the aspirations of those less fortunate. I already love this. First paragraph, and I'm just like, man, it's it's like the high rise where I go to work. 
If the focus on one class seems unnecessarily narrow, I would point out that most books, and especially those which make large claims about the American character and culture, are in fact about this class and about it alone. We are told periodically that, quote-unquote, Americans are becoming more self-involved, materialistic, spineless, or whatever, when actually only a a subgroup of Americans is meant. People who are more likely to be white-collar professionals, lawyers, middle managers, or social workers, for example, than machinists or sales clerks. And usually, this limitation goes without mention, for in our culture, the professional and largely white middle class is taken as a social norm, a bland and neutral mainstream from which every other group or class is ultimately a kind of deviation. Now, Consider one of the great popular sociological endeavors of the last three decades, The Lonely Crowd. In this wonderfully imaginative, wide-ranging book, David Reisman, 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 am I pronouncing that right? Uh, Okay. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure I'm going to um, butcher some of these names, and uh, you just kind of have to forgive me on this point. There's going to be a lot of name dropping. um, Okay. And and the good news is, like, there's a fair number of them that I do recognize i will admit mm. uh david reisman or yeah i, I yeah reisman rice okay um, yeah in this wonderfully imaginative wide-ranging book david reisman purported to demonstrate a deep change in the american character a decline one might say of inner discipline and will only well into the book does the reader discover that many millions of americans the members of the blue-collar working class are exempt from this characterological change, or immune, as the author puts it. No one seems to have thought this omission strange, though. Uh, Clearly, Reisman's crowd was far lonelier than it needed to have been. Many other familiar and important books about the American experience and character turn out to be entries into the swelling biography of the middle class. These books only reflect a larger tendency to see the middle class as a universal class, a class which is everywhere represented as representing everyone. Television typically displays only a narrow spectrum of American expertise, of American experience and opinion. The pundits who dominate the talk shows are, to a man and occasional woman, all members of this relatively privileged group, I would beg to differ, Uh, (laughs) well-fed, well-educated, and employed in physically restful occupations such as journalism, hey now, Mm -hmm. or college teaching. And when we see a man in work clothes on the screen, we anticipate some grievance or, at best, information of a highly local or anecdotal nature. Anecdotal nature, huh? That's interesting. I would have probably expected that sentence to end with something more objective, not anecdotal, but I mean, I suppose if she's looking at it through like the eyes of like, well, well, this is my perspective of how I perceive what's happening. Yeah. Well, I think news, um, I think with that alone, uh, you know, when we see a man in work clothes on the screen, we anticipate some grievance or at best information of a highly local. It's the idea that you have that one guy in overalls who shows up on screen to the, you know, whatever the the show's family or, or I don't know, right. main characters to be like, oh, well, he's got a big, chomping on a big cigar and his face mm. is like pulled back. And, uh, Time for another day Tommy, at the dock. 
Yeah, I remember, <laughs> remember when Tommy got his finger lopped off at the factory, you know, and yeah, it's, right, yeah, right. so it's, it, it doesn't, it, it comes off as, again, you know, highly local or anecdotal, but it's like, okay, but like, show me the report. Yeah, we we anticipate some grievance or at best information. I, I like that some grievance. Like it's already this example is already being pitted against sort of the stuffy businessman motif. You know, right. like if he's in this position, he obviously must be suffering. And I, I'm not one to make sort of a what's the word? I don't want to make like a prediction, but I'm assuming that. Aaron Reich's going to be like, well, people in blue-collar positions, those who choose to be at least, or those who find fulfillment in it, mm -hmm. those are the outliers. Um, I could be dead wrong, but I'm, I'm curious as to see how she's going to separate them for sake of anal analyzing them and then divvying that. Oh, she um, does. Believe me, she mm -hmm. will. So, buckle in. <laughs> On matters of general interest or national importance, waitresses, forklift operators. I did get my forklift certification the other day, actually, which is awesome. Yeah, the military teaches you a lot. Steam fitters, that is most ordinary Americans, are not invited to opine. Much, though certainly not all, contemporary fiction shows a similar narrowness of focus. A typical quality novel of recent vintage will explore the relationships and reveries of people who live in large houses and employ at least one servant to manage all those details of daily living that are extraneous to the plot el doctorow has observed that when a novel featuring poor or working class people does come along it is usually judged to be political in intent meaning that it does not qualify as art oh man doesn't that ring true <laughs> No, really. I mean, you have your works of your novels and your in, even your film adaptations, and I don't know why this is, and I'm sure you could probably conjure up better examples, but that movie, The Help, mm -hmm. was the first thing that came to mind, and it's like, well, of course we're looking at it through a political lens, but more so the elephant in the room of, hey, the proprietor of the house is one color and the servant is another color. Right. I mean that's just kind of looking at looking at it in terms of black and white, which surprise, surprise, that's that's a little on of, the nose. To the point of of political. I mean, I I, I hate to. There is mm -hmm. um, a great video from the '80s of when Hitchens was on Firing Line with William F. Buckley, and he actually does bring up uh, an earlier Barbara Ehrenreich book, talking a little bit about you know the feminist movement and how it's evolved uh you know from the 60s into the 70s to whatever it was in the 80s and he makes a really great point about how he's got this annoying cretinous conservative guy that has pretty much gone into obscurity since then who has given him the harshest time and at some point he says to him look it's not about me making the issues political they were already politicized there was no way of avoiding it so you know that's how you get that that idea if to really go down the Hitchens rabbit hole his favorite author George Orwell went full political with 1984 like that right. back right. in the day was considered like oh a big fuck you to the Soviet Union to the man yeah yeah and for a long time it was still the bane of both people on the left and the right until they both decided to turn around and actually pick it up and, and read adopt it. the political the politicizing yeah. <laughs> from the novel like it, it's really weird with orwell just be anyway it's 
That could be a separate. Oh separate God, thing. yeah. <laughs> it could be a whole separate mini series. Again, not <laughs> miniature in nature. The cultural ubiquity of the professional middle class may seem to make it an easy subject for a writer. There's no need to travel to offbeat settings or conduct extensive interviews to find out what is on its mind. One does not have to consult specialists, sociologists, or anthropologists to discover how people in this class order the details of their daily lives. Their lifestyles, habits, tastes, and attitudes are everywhere and inescapably before us. But the very ubiquity of the professional middle class makes it vexingly difficult to write about as a distinct class, and a class which, far from representing everyone, is also a distinct minority. Who can presume to step outside of it? Its ideas and assumptions are everywhere, and not least in our own minds. Even those of us who come from very different social settings often find it hard to distinguish middle-class views from what we think we ought to think. And for those of us who are inside this class, as most professional writers are by definition, if not also by virtue of shared tastes and habits of mind, the effort can be overwhelming. I mean, I'll say, I would say that the expectations from one work from a professional writer certainly carries over to the next. Mm -hmm. um, even those of us who come from very different social settings often find it hard to distinguish middle class views from what we think we ought to think. Okay. There's even a problem of what to call this class. One measure of its status as an implicit mainstream and a presumably neutral vantage point is that it has no proper and familiar name. Middle class is hardly satisfactory, standing as it often does for almost everyone except the extremes of wealth and poverty. New class, however, is favored by intellectuals, but assumes some awareness of the, quote, old classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and has hence remained exotic. Intelligentsia is often, or is occasionally used, but is far too narrow and, I think, unduly flattering. Professional managerial class comes closest to describing the special status of this class, and professional middle class, which I will employ here, is close enough. Mic drop! <laughs> but since that term is cumbersome to read or say, I will fall back at times on middle class. All right, pick the mic back up. <laughs> but the very things that make this class so hard to talk about also make it urgent that such talk begin. Nameless and camouflaged by a culture in which it both stars and writes the scripts. It's like Barbara was even telling me to stop. He put a She put a two-space gap there. So I think that's about a good stopping point for me as any. Um, okay. So middle class is the terminology that we'll be using going forward in order to describe the professional middle class. Well, at times she'll... She'll, she'll flip it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So professional so, managerial class and professional mm -hmm. middle class. So I know this was something that we mentioned a while back and honestly it was the i think the moment that inspired me not only for uh what i was going to get you for christmas but also thinking uh well, actually the, the thought of the podcast came later but um 
that comes later, as 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 Bane once said. Um, but the definition that she, you know, prescribes here, and obviously it'll be further fleshed out, I think, in the rest of the introduction. Like for example, you and I would fit in that category, and it definitely becomes a big point of controversy among people in not only in the middle class but also if they identify themselves with more left-wing politics for example just because it comes from that standpoint of well I'm I've got two fingers left and I've been working on the railroad and I I've, I've absorbed so much that I cough all the time Oops, so much I don't know toxic fumes or whatever from work so there's that, but then you've also got, like, the people that are struggling to make ends meet who happen to be working in... I mean, later on she talks about the yuppies, for example. Like, you had a bunch of yuppies that were, like, putting on, you know, putting on their, uh... whatever glasses that, uh... What's-his-face from American Psycho puts on and going, that's nice. Yeah, that, that's very nice. And, and, and the reality is their background was no different than our background specifically our educational backgrounds but also the conditions we live in so you know it's it but obviously she goes in further on like well where's the divide and where's the desire in terms of if you're somebody that's part of the pmc as it's typically referred to nowadays are you accepting of being part of the middle class or are you do you reject it wholeheartedly and that's something that she's going to answer throughout the book. I mean, we, we've kind of already discussed it, I know, on Mars on Life, but she fleshes it out, fleshes it out in a much better way than I probably could. Do you want me to pick up where the page break? Yeah, if you'd like, um, okay. and we can just kind of go from there. Okay. Um, and if anything, too, I'll, I'll try and see if I can get through, and then by the end of it, if we have any thoughts, we can... Yeah. Obviously, chip in, you know, both of us of I know we're going to have uh, things to say. Mm -hmm. My own interest in the professional middle class stems from a long habit of writing about ideas, what might be called mainstream ideas, of the kind that are found every day in the media or the ambient cultural generally. Much of my time has been spent on bad ideas, notions that eventually get shelved as myths, such as the huge edifice of beliefs undergirding the historically unequal relationship between men and women. At some point, one is bound to ask, or be called on to explain, just whose ideas those were, and why such notions ever arose and took the form they did. Any honest answer must begin by pointing out that most ideas that find their way into the cultural mainstream originate within a rather narrow social base. They are crafted by a relative elite, people who are well-educated, reasonably well-paid, and who overlap, socially and through family ties, Brett Kavanaugh, with at least the middling levels of the business community. In short, the professional middle class. Ideas are simply part of the business of this class, or at least the business of its more vocal members, journalists, <laughs> academics, writers, and commentators. These people are paid to provide the spin, as I flip the page, the verbal rap that gives coherence to events or serves to justify arrangements we might otherwise be inclined to question. Sometimes members of this class are even paid to do the questioning. Pundits. <laughs> um, I saw that look. Yeah, hey, I... I you know, I think, I think in that case, you know, when people are just paid to outright 
do a full frontal assault. I mean, at that point, it becomes less of journalism and more like a cross examination. Mm. You know, when you feel like you're in, you when you feel like you're in that um, air of superiority standing on your soapbox online, it's very hard to be like, oh, minor spelling mistake, gotcha moment, and berate someone with questions as to why. In the back of your mind, you're justifying why your perspective is correct. And mm -hmm. at that point, that's not a dialogue. And I know that no. we've gone ad nauseum about that, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll stifle myself <laughs> while I can. The ideas that set me off on this project were ideas about another kind of inequality, as I move closer to the mic. Uh, one shared by men as well as women. The economic inequality of class. While ideas about gender and even race have moved, however, haltingly in the direction of greater tolerance and inclusivity, ideas about class remain mired in prejudice and mythology. Enlightened people who might flinch at a racial slur have no trouble listing the character defects of an ill-defined ill underclass, defects which routinely include ignorance, promiscuity, and sloth. Or sloth. I'm American. Uh... <laughs> This is, if when anything, has an American ever pronounced it that way? I, I mean, I, I've what? heard, I've heard Brit say sloth. Is there an I, I was a? always like, is there an a in sloth after the o? No, there, it's just, it's sloth. It's oh, sloth. oh, right, right. Sorry, I thought you said yeah, like, a after the th. Like, I, like, is there a silent a in there that I'm that I just didn't I, pick up on in primary school? I, I <laughs> sloth. What's next? Loosed, gred. <laughs> Glutowny. Let's get Kenneth, all the sins in there. Kenneth Brana. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this is, if anything, even less inhibition about caric caricaturing the white or ethnic working class. Its tastes are tacky, its habits unhealthful, and its views are hopelessly bigoted and parochial. These stereotypes are hurtful in many ways, not least because they imply that nothing can be done. Efforts to help the poor would only increase their fecklessness and childlike dependence. And the working class, as stereotyped, would be hostile to such efforts anyway. In the 60s, liberalism, as defined by the intention to achieve a more egalitarian society, was an affiliation worn with pride. Today that word has degenerated into a slur, coyly designated as the L-word. In the early 60s, the big debate was about how best to mobilize the war on poverty. Today, such an undertaking would likely be seen as misguided and possibly detrimental to the poor themselves. It is not that the problems have gone away or no longer justify our concern. An unseemly proportion of the population still lives in poverty, as much as 20%. If we leave aside the federal government's stone-hearted definition for a more realistic measure, millions more in the working-class majority still labor at mind-dulling, repetitive tasks and count themselves lucky to have a job at all. Meanwhile, the gap between the haves and the have-nots, not only between the rich and the poor, but between the middle class and the working class, is wider than it has been at any time since the end of World War II, so that America's income distribution is now almost as perilously skewed as that of India. If the reality has not improved, then ideas have changed. That's a damning statistic right there. Yeah, and, and that's for other reasons. I was going to say, India? Well, really? and I think too, but, but I want to I want to see where where this tangent takes us because mm -hmm. I feel like you see a, a lot, a lot more income inequality in second and third world countries where 
you oftentimes find out that cultural, I don't even want to say cultural aspects because I know that that would probably come off as offensive, but mm-hmm. second and third world countries perhaps don't have the, I don't want to even say economic luxuries, but it's not like here you can buy off the police. It's not like here where you can see prostitutes in a manner that won't land you with a substantial repercussion, whereas that's how they make a living over there in some ways. They're, they, they're resorted to more you know, illicit and sometimes illegal activities in order to even stay afloat. I mean, mm-hmm. Christ, Christ's sake, there's entire... There's entire YouTube channels dedicated to stopping scam baiters in India, and on the flip side of that, endless documentaries about the ongoing prostitution epidemic. So it makes me really wonder how she sees America going down this very same way, and I'm probably already dating myself by saying that, because I'm sure she's going to say it within this introduction or the book, but... Well, this is also a book from 1989. I, I should, yeah. I probably should have said at the out front. So there may <laughs> be a few things here and there that are, are a little dated, but I mean, I, me, would, I would still, I would still love to see the uh, the parallels because yeah. it would be interesting to see in the year 2023 if by the end of this book, uh, oh no, it's actually come true. Um, I won't so, give yeah. that answer away. I mean, no, obviously, yeah. if I, if I. <sighs> It probably does, given the fact that I I do mm-hmm. really really th- this is a phenomenal read, and I think that's always um, you know I, I think I've already said it before on Mars on Life like books that can be timeless, mm-hmm. but also can have this air of almost eternal accuracy. Right. That is both something that I look for, but also something that I kind of dread. <laughs> Just because, I'll put it to you this way, if I'm reading about, like, what happened in America in, say, for example, 1919, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really it's really cruel that we have um, at least two years within the last 100 plus years, 1919 and 2020, that are so ridiculously similar in almost every way you could think of, including a pandemic. Right. As well as just all of the hysteria around left-wing politics, around, oh, mm-hmm. we have black people in America. What what do we do? You hear this in a lot of everyday conservative arguments, or really, I should say, conservative pundit arguments, because mm-hmm. let's be serious, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have this line of dialogue in, I was going to say parliament, parliament, Congress, excuse me. Well... I, I mean, that's well, that's it, the weird thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of conservative pundits would be like, you know, show me the inequality. Show, you know, show me the inequality um, after uh, after the Civil Rights Act. Like they're just going to forget that Jim Crow fucking went away and he didn't uh, or at least the effects of, of Jim Crow laws, you know, uh, not so much being. No, yeah, pretty much reinstated and enforced by some communities, yeah. uh, even post civil rights. So, again, very interesting. And I, again, I hate to keep going off on these tangents, but I love this. I love the discussion that we're having here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll let you finish this, and then we can definitely. I'm sure there are more ideas in this introduction alone that we're just going to hash out. And we simply care less. 
or we find the have-nots less worthy of our concern. But why? I started out with the seemingly straightforward plan of tracing mainstream ideas about the lower classes, the poor and the working class, over the past three decades. In mainstream American culture, the lower classes had dropped from view in the 50s. This is a big point. I should know. This is a big point that she's going to really the, dive into. The lower classes had dropped from view in the 50s. Hold on one moment. Meaning that they dropped overall, percentage-wise? Mm -mm. Like, meaning that th there was not a lower class? Mm-mm. Okay, I was gonna I was gonna make the rebuttal. Well, no shit, it was a prosperous period. So, what lower class? <laughs> you mean the you mean the time when everything was affordable and I can actually, I don't know, boomer humor. Well, um, she she actually, ba long story short, she refutes that. She basically, mm -hmm. or rather, she rebuts that. Where, uh, you know, not to give not to give it away, but it, it's basically like, well, it's easy. America just was like. That's not happening. What? Right. We're, right. We're, we're, we're beating the Russians. We're beating the, you know, we're, we're winning in Korea. Everything's great. You know, I was gonna say the, better, the 50s, better dead than was, red. Yeah, the, the 50s. What? The 50s, that was, um, was post-World War II. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Why did I have to think about that for a second? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, go on. Sorry. Yeah. In mainstream American culture, the lower classes had dropped from view in the 50s, uh, vanishing so completely that they had to be discovered. There was the discovery of poverty in the early 60s and the equally dramatic, though less well-remembered, discovery of the working class at the end of that decade. Uh, each of these events were accompanied by much fanfare, cover stories, television specials, scholarly analyses, even Hollywood attention, and it seemed to me that by mining this material I might gain some insights into, their, into our attitudes toward the less well-off and why these views have seemed to sour. But in this project, more than any other I had undertaken, the question of whose ideas were inescapable. If the poor and the working class had to be discovered, from whose vantage point were they once hidden? And what we is implicit in any statement above our attitudes? Gradually, and with some initial apprehension, I realized that our ideas could not be traced or even understood without clarifying that evasive we and introducing the middle class as an actor in the story. What happened in the life of this class to cause the retreat from liberalism? Finally, there was the economic crunch of the 70s, which awakened any remaining liberals of the middle class to their own material self-interest. They retreated into their careers and private, private lives, secure in the belief that the have-nots were not worth helping anyway. Ah, uh, yes, it's the age-old adage. It's the industry of kill your parents, fuck your friends, and have a nice day. You know who said that? Kevin Spacey. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying that as something he said. But right. the movie Swimming with Sharks mm -hmm. has many, has many lines that kind of resonate with what you just read. That one, as well as if you haven't turned rebel by age 20 you have no heart but if you haven't turned establishment by age 30 you have no you have no brain <laughs> and it's interesting to see you know not so much on the flip of a dime how these baby boomers uh, that is the generation yeah, yeah. 46 to 64 oh, they, they weren't even 
they weren't even of the age to even be working i i want to say well by by the yuppie period they were the yuppie period they were yeah um but it's interesting to sort of see the switch between care for your fellow man to kick down your fellow man while he's down mm -hmm. well and also don't forget i mean 46 by the ford administration so you know 1976 um mm -hmm. the bicentennial you know a baby boomer could be uh 30 years old right. older than me mm -hmm. so uh you know and and obviously by that point and and i i'll absolutely do my best to finish the sentence without turning it into a whole diatribe about the power of the 60s turning into the crushing wave that Hunter S. Thompson talks about in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. But, uh, you know, by the end of the 70s, there was that kind of cynicism that ultimately resulted in everything that's talked about in this book with the worst years of our lives, um, <laughs> of the 80s. An attempt to understand the retreat from liberalism as an episode of, in the life of the middle class, a change of mind, a shift in consciousness. And the key shift, the one which began to seem most closely linked to the decline of liberalism, was in the middle class perception of itself. From the naive mid-century idea that the middle class was America, and included everyone to a growing awareness that the middle class was only one class among others, and an isolated, privileged one at that. It's moments like those last uh, seven words that got I mean, her into I, trouble uh, years later, which, uh, I, I, was, I mean... I, I, I was going to say, if you're in the middle class, I, I, I guess by association and comparison, you would you would feel that way looking down at the, at the lower class, but mm -hmm. you forget there's a level above you that is pissing and moaning on your parade, you know, mm -hmm. which it's like, all right, well... I, I, I guess if you're the king in the tiny castle, that's great. There's a king in an even bigger castle over there. If you really want to, if you really want to uh, draw draw straws here. No, I mean what you just said is like a, a good summation of this whole book. Well, that's it, everybody. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian figured it out, and we're on page triple X. Next up, the Da Vinci Code. Let's go. <laughs> If I could solve this, I can solve anything. Oh, dear God. Uh, the discoveries, speaking of which, uh, the discoveries of the poor and the working class were, of course, essential to this self-awareness. So was something I had not originally figured on. The student rebellion of the 60s, whose impact on middle-class opinion will be explored in the pages of Head, which I hinted at earlier. Um, all of these discoveries and events combined to convince an an influential minority of the professional middle class that their class was in fact a very special group an elite above the majority of quote-unquote ordinary people it was in this view and emerging self-consciousness as an elite that the middle class or significant segments of it turned right conventional or I should say in this case conservative wisdom might argue the reverse liberalism we often hear is the property of an elite the so-called liberal elite that has been denounced by Republicans from Spiro Agnew to George Bush. Spiro Agnew, of course, being Nixon's VP, George Bush being not the... <laughs> being being we're, that we're guy gonna that... Get, uh, Sam, we're going to get that, Saddam. Being that guy that Dana Carvey played that one time in that one movie. No, he played... That was, uh, that was W in that movie. Oh. 
But on SNL, he did play H.W., where he's like, now... It was still a bad movie. And he's, like, doing these, like, weird... Because H.W. Bush would do these weird, like, hand gestures, like, while he was doing his speeches. <laughs> now we're, we're gonna... We're gonna annihilate Iraq. Impossible to trace. They Our missiles, they're here, and they're there. It's scary! Anyway. Uh, I love... I just... Oh. Oh, so it's anyway. Uh, I I would have been screaming if I lived in the worst years of our lives. Anyway, oh, um, hey, I already am. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, conservatism on economic as well as social issues is, on the other hand, often thought to be native to the common folk, the average Joe. Yet historically, and for obvious reasons, elites are seldom the champions of equality and social justice. The youthful, there it is. The youthful members of a social elite may embrace the cause of the downtrodden. Scattered individuals may follow their conscience to some course of action beyond mere charity. But on the whole, an elite that is conscious of its status will defend that status. Wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold, I don't mean to cut Yeah? Individuals may follow their conscience to some course of action beyond mere charity. Just gonna let that sink in, simmer for a little bit. You mean to tell me that people crying public outreach, crying bo boy cries wolf, they're they're in it for money, unscrupulous reasons, perhaps not mere charity. Do tell. Well, I th I think. I'm just kind of rereading it again, just so scattered on. individuals may follow their conscience to some course of action beyond mere. Oh, scattered they are indeed, my friend. Well, and I think, I think the way she describes it is, you know, imagine. Uh, I mean, the the best, the best example I can think of is uh, there's that one Succession episode where Kendall Roy turns around to the press and says, "Fuck the patriarchy," and it's like, dude, you were kissing your horrible cretinous deluded father media mogul father's ass like a season ago and here you are trying to be woke and what are you doing besides you know being hot on twitter anyway um but obviously yeah i mean you're gonna have those folks that like are just shilling it but regardless um but on the whole an elite that is conscious of its status will defend that status, even if this means abandoning, in all but rhetoric, such stated values as democracy and fairness. In fact, as we shall see, the notion of the professional middle class as a powerful elite, as a powerful elite, finds its most forceful expression among those who are, or who have been moved, the farthest from liberal ideas. It is a notion that is central to contemporary right-wing thought, from neoconservatives to new rightists. It has become, although in a, in a peculiar, pe it's always one of those words for me, peculiarly disingenuous way, almost the defining obsession of the right. This book is about what could be called the class consciousness of the professional middle class, and how this consciousness has developed over the past three decades. In the pages ahead, we will follow the emerging middle class awareness of being a class among others, and ultimately of being an elite above others. So that what you said earlier bada bing there it is um throughout we will be concerned with the ways in which this emerging self-image has led to 
and sometimes help to justify the adoption of the kind of political outlook appropriate to an elite, which is a conservative outlook and ultimately indifferent to the non-elite majority. Finally, moving up to the present, 1989, uh, we will look at the attempt by a significant minority of the professional middle class, briefly known as yuppies, to live as if they actually were an elite of wealth and power. Uh, I can already hear all the Andrew Tate fans out there feeling uh, a little, little prick, a little bit pricked, because if this was updated for this time period, Man, it would arguably be those forty dollars. I spent forty dollars <laughs> on that master class. It, it promised me to be rich. What do you mean? <laughs> this is not on the whole. You a mean pretty... I too can run a prostitution <laughs> ring? <laughs> I too can drop ship. I can hide my balding head by shaving it. <laughs> hey man, what color's your Bugatti? That's what I thought. Uh, it's not Bugatti. It's Bugatti. Okay. Oh, Bugatti. Oh, Bugatti. <laughs> Sorry, I'll have to consult my seventeen other passports uh, illegally obtained. <laughs> this is not libel or slander. This is publicly made information that he himself. <laughs> Let's continue. The BBC knows this. Anyway. Yes. Uh, this is not, on the whole, a pretty story, but one marred by prejudice, delusion, and even at a deeper level, self-loathing. Self-loathing. Uh, for this reason alone, I owe the reader some qualifications, more perhaps than I am prepared to make. First, a class, of course, is never of one mind. Here we will be following a particular stream of thought and imagery expressed by various intellectuals, scholars, media people, and opinion makers, and found also in familiar settings such as movies, news magazines, and television. Other less mainstream currents of middle-class opinion, particularly of the left, receive scant scrutiny here. Though to be honest, the left is already represented here, however inadequately, by my point of view. Second statements above, about consciousness and perceptions are not, of course, amenable to proof. This book is necessarily an interpretive, even rashly speculative venture. I have tried to connect a great many themes and subjects, from, for example, middle-class anxieties about affluence and status, to ideas about poverty and public policy. I have tried to place sweeping ideas about politics and morality in the context of more mundane middle-class concerns, for example, about lifestyle and consumption, child-raising, and the role of women. I have tried to pull trying to put all of this into a more or less coherent story. The risk in this is of being too coherent, too selective, and of imposing a pattern that, that history, in its willfulness, cannot sustain. I leave it to the more cautious and more scholarly to correct any excesses and propose, if possible, a better pattern. And I think after this... Okay, so we got this page break and then we have one more just before the end of the intro okay all right before this story can be told i must first introduce its central character the professional middle class this class can be defined somewhat abstractly as all those people whose economic and social status is based on education rather than the ownership of capital or property most professionals are included, and so are white-collar managers, whose positions require at least, at the very least, a college degree. And increasingly, also a graduate degree. Okay. Thank God. 
Not all white collar people are included, though some of these entrepreneurs, though some of these are entrepreneurs and some are better classified as, quote, workers. But the professional middle class is still extremely broad and includes such diverse types as school teachers, anchor persons, engineers, professors, government bureaucrats, corporate executives, at least up through the middle levels of management, scientists, advertising people, therapists, financial managers, architects, and I should add, myself. <laughs> mm hmm <laughs> That was like a shameless plug even before there was even a word for that. Or is that the satire peeking in, I wonder? Ah, see? Yep. For you see, when we talk about class, we are making a generalization about large groups of people and about how they live and make their livings. Though, it should tell us something about the broad terrain of inequality and about how people are clustered, very roughly, at different levels of comfort, status, and control over their lives. Couldn't have said it better. I thought I had something more to add there. I just, you know, when she mentioned uh, job mobility, I was like, oh, okay, well, obviously this is going to be, you can't look at this like a black and white circumstance, mm -hmm. you know, where you can just sort of have a base leveling, you know, everyone needs to be looked at individually. How much it tells us depends on how much the people whom we are lumping together as a class have in common. <clears throat> Well there well there they go utilizing statistics but uh <laughs> the period of study and apprenticeship which may extend nearly to midlife is essential to the social cohesion of the middle class it is in the college or graduate school that the young often find their future spouses and lifelong friends much more than an extended childhood, however, this long training period requires the discipline and self-direction, <laughs> not to mention the money, <laughs> that are essential to the adult occupational life of the class. Oh, there we go. Number three, income. Couldn't have said it better. Couldn't have transitioned it better. For the most part, members of the professional middle class earn, quote, and I say this in loosely, quote, the loosest available quotes there are given inflation. <laughs> Upper middle incomes, though these may range from a non-Ivy League professor's $30,000 to six-figure salaries for a star professor or big city attorney. Typically, middle-class couples earn enough for home ownership in a neighborhood inhabited by other members of their class, college educations for their children, and such enriching experiences as vacation trips, psychotherapy. I love that. Th this was definitely the 80s. <laughs> Fitness training, summer camp, and the consumption of, quote, culture in various forms. Psychotherapy? Really? I can, I can understand the vacation trips. Fitness training, I'm, I'm still paying 10 bucks a month for my subscription. <laughs> summer camp, yeah, I was definitely a summer camp kid. And consumption of culture, well, the, the, check our last museum episodes. <laughs> Number four, lifestyle and tastes. All of the above shape a rough commonality of lifestyle and consumer tastes. In general, the middle class uses consumption to establish its status, especially relative to the working class. And typically, this is meant in emphasis on things authentic, things natural, and frequently imported. 
Such tastes provide the class cues by which middle-class people recognize each other outside of their occupational settings and help guarantee that a lawyer, for example, does not unwittingly fall into the company of some, shall we say, lower status person, such as an off-duty plumber or postal worker. Marriage within the group is important to members of the middle class and helps give this class, like the other classes in American society, a certain caste-like quality. Oh, you, you want me to pick up there? Or are you? Oh, I mean, I can keep going. I, I can keep going. I mean, I was, I was pontificating. I mean, caste-like. I wouldn't. I don't know. Are we becoming more like serfs by the day, or? I mean, you made a great point earlier about just, you know, like, like for example, the whole capability in certain like third world countries to just buy off police officers and i mean if you ask me i feel like that's doable here depending on who you are and how much money you make yeah. um right you know and, and and i mean for years and i i know i've said this multiple times on mars on life and i'm sure there's listeners out there that think i'm i have something against brazil i don't um but i always used to say and i i know people in Brazil who have who have sort of echoed this with me that one day the United States is going to be like Brazil where mm -hmm. you know it, it's it is this great wonderful melting pot but the problem is is that things are so unequal to the point where you know the most basic corrupt things can just be easily gotten away with in broad mm -hmm. daylight and no one's going to do anything about it. And, you know, that's, if anything, too, that's all, that is also just a sign of the state of things, class consciousness, you name it. Like, it's, would you rather, you know, not to really, well, not, not to sound cliche in some way, but do you want to start a revolution or do you just want to go down the street to get to, get to the office, mm -hmm. you know? Um, right. Anyway, yeah, I mean, if you want to finish the rest of the introduction, sure. by all sure. means, yeah. How much these commonalities of income, occupation, and so forth tend to create a common awareness? A psychology or class consciousness is, of course, a question for the chapters ahead, though. But here we might briefly attempt to answer the somewhat more objective question of whether the professional middle class is really an elite. For if it's not, then this book only charts a tragic disillusion, leading unnecessarily to meanness and to isolation from the American majority. And in layman's terms, I get to donate the book because it didn't tell me anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> in some ways, of course, the professional middle class is an elite. Compared to the poor and the working class, it certainly is. Oh, called it. Hey, you know what? Give, give me a jar. The, the Sebastian called it jar. We'll add oh, money to it as it goes I, on. And and by the end of it, I'm hoping I have enough for uh um so that way I can uh go up a tax bracket. <laughs> <laughs> the difference is not only a matter of money, but of authority, influence, and power. Yet the professional middle class is still only a middle class, located well below the ultimate elite of wealth and power. Add another where are my coins? I could just add this to the jar already. <laughs> Right there. It, it's it's like I said, it's located right in the middle, so while you may be the king, 
you're the king of a tiny castle, and there's someone up above you. Just watch the platform, honestly. If you oh, I already. have, by the way. Oh, oh, oh man. We'll, we'll talk about it after we, we wrap up, but yeah. I... It's only quote-unquote capital is knowledge and skill. Or at least the credentials imputing skill and knowledge. And unlike real capital, these cannot be hoarded against hard times, preserved beyond the lifetime of an individual, or of course, bequeathed. The capital belonging to the middle class is far more evanescent, evanescent than wealth, and must be renewed in each individual through fresh effort and commitment. In this class, no one escapes the requirements of self-discipline and self-directed labor. They're visited in each generation, upon the young as they were upon the parents. If this is an elite, then it is an insecure and deeply anxious one. So, there is not ultimately an objective answer to the question of whether the middle class is an elite or something less exalted. An extension, perhaps, of the working class. And hence, there is no easy answer to the much harder question of whether it is naturally inclined to the left or to the right. Is the middle class by nature generous or selfish, overindulged or aggrieved, committed to equality or defensive of privilege? These are not only possible answers, but choices to be made. It's not every day that an intro it's it's not even I want to say like one eighth of the book, you know. I, I'm willing to bet that there. I can't even give a number right now because I can't even find the table of contents. There it is. There's six chapters in total. A hundred divided by seven. That's about fifteen ish. About fifteen percent of the book, roughly. I think most people when they go through their college years, their undergraduate years, especially they often find themselves in a place where this is the right choice, this is where I'm supposed to be, and here's why. Because it's the promise of something better. And it's the promise of not wanting to arrive at a point where you believe that all of this, of what you've worked for, all of the education and the occupational training that you've received was for nothing. Sometimes it's even to the point of doing it because your parents or grandparents or extended family could not do it mm -hmm. or would not do it. Most often than not, it's coincided with doing this because you're in the search of a better life. You're wanting to provide more so for your family or for your loved ones. At the end of the day, it comes down to the fact of money comes down to the, to the point of money okay you are getting college educated to receive the skills necessary to perform a job that otherwise blue collar workers would not be able to do mm -hmm. and i say that not to discredit or diminish the work of blue collar workers and I'm not even going to say anecdotally, I used to be one, but yes, I used to be one. I used to work on machines before I stumbled into the into the realm of finance. It's just and... the way you said it, it just reminds me of a line from Mrs. Doubtfire. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Oh. <laughs> I think for the most part, anecdotally speaking otherwise, there is no other way to look at it. Mm -hmm. If I didn't need this education or occupational skills training... Um, to receive a livable wage, to receive an income 
uh, cursory to the economy that I'm living in. And yes, that's also adjusted for inflation. Okay, I, I've run the numbers. I can, I could, I could tell very specifically which communities are gerrymandered as shit to see that there is economic inequality going on from city to city, and that's only in California. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of course, I never would want to be poor. And I say that, again, not to disparage those who are below or even at the point of being on the poverty line. I want to say that I, I've done what I've done in education because it, it gave me fulfillment, and it does to a degree. But really, it's money. It's security at the end of the day. And I think I'm just very much tired of the notion that you know you, you you're not supposed to enjoy your job because it's your job. Oftentimes, more often than not, I want to say this is a place that we need to spend upwards of two thirds of our lives being at and being focused on and being committed to. You know, I understand that the articles roaming around out there saying stating that job mobility and the great reshuffling is something that was evident in 2020 still onward. Mm -hmm. And it worked out for me and you. Doesn't well, I, I didn't majority. ultimately I didn't reshuffle. I think that, that you like, reshuffled I to a different state. You saw where the opportunity was. Well the Yeah, and, but and, the, and more yeah. so and I want to say you didn't so much leave your discipline as you just looked at outside the borders of your, your home state and mm. saw that something else could be done. Most people don't have that luxury. As much as I'd like to say and, and this is the last thing that I'll say here before I'm finished. As much as I want to say that, and this and this is probably going to mirror uh, previous sentiments that I've had on Mars on Life, as much as individuals want to say that work shouldn't be fun, um, and to the other side of the aisle that says, oh, well, work should be enjoyable. Otherwise, why are you there? Well, why I'm here is because I'm trying to earn something um, compensatory to what I've been studying. So... I don't want to fucking hear it, basically. <laughs> I'm expecting this not to be easy because the college education wasn't to get here. Mm -hmm. But in terms of in terms of looking at, you know, in the outside in, because I still consider myself a new contender to the industry, mm. professionals don't care about those below them. Mm -hmm. Even if they are in position, even if they are in pseudo-philanthropic philanthropic positions where they are solely their, their sole goal is to assist those beneath them. <laughs> There's still the uh, the general understanding and acknowledgement that um, it's be that they're beneath them. Okay, mm. so it's innately a, a status. It's innately a status gesture. I'm not expecting these chapters to necessarily make me feel hope for the world because what I've seen and maybe what you've invariably seen is very much the opposite. But I am looking forward to continuing. No, me too. In in so many different ways, this book definitely holds up. And I know even among figures of the contemporary American left, there is a lot of disagreement on, is there a, a PMC? Uh, is there a professional managerial class? And I mean, if, if you were to ask me, you know, 
Ryan, the journalist, um, who, who studies America and, and sees, sees the world for what it is. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly a good framework. You know, I, I won't go, I won't go the full stretch to say, oh, well, it, well, that's not true, because if you did ask me, oh, Ryan, is this a real thing, I'd say, yeah, in my eyes, it's no different than mathematics, where the laws of the universe, the laws of nature, the laws of what have you, it was all there, it was just, you, we had, humanity had to get to that point where it could actually, like, count, and divide, and figure things out so that it reached a rational conclusion, and I do think that what Aaron Reich lays down in this book is that rational conclusion that I think definitely still holds up to this day and still uh, is still the bane of much of existence in this day and age. Um, just because you could have, you know, I, I've, I think I've talked about it elsewhere with friends and, and um, I certainly gave a whole diatribe about it to a coworker not too long ago, but you know, you could have an individual like one of the current contra more controversial city council members in Los Angeles, Kevin DeLeon, who by definition is very much a, a PMC figure, but his upbringing is very lower, you know, lower middle class so or, and working class. So, and at this point, given that controversy, which listeners can go elsewhere to look into, it does come across as well, I'm above all that because I'm here. But at the same time, this is the man who was denied the keys to the castle when he couldn't even win a Senate seat uh, to represent California. There, there are clear examples of that that we witness, that dictate our lives, and even ourselves. I mean, you and I would, by definition, be considered PMC. Um, because, we, you know, we went to college, we were educated, we acquired all of the skills that we found necessary for our respective careers and then of course we actually like got to that point where we got the careers and then the question becomes well what does that ultimately make us well if we're I hate to borrow this term if we're gatekeepers in any way then we are a form of the PMC but does that make us elite so those are questions that I mean at this point we've pretty much already answered but Aaron Reich definitely answers further. And again, the way that she details the historical trajectory that creates not only a conceptual PMC, but also details just the existence of what pov uh, the existence of poverty in America post the Great Depression. And the whole idea of like it had to be discovered. Like first it was non-existent, and then it had to be discovered. Like that was something that when I, I approached it, I had to think back to what I learned about the 50s and what I've learned, especially in recent years from reading um, Rick Perlstein's books on modern conservatism. You know, there's this resurgence, uh, or rather, excuse me, resurgence of a middle class in the late 70s that ultimately votes for Ronald Reagan. And it's like, how do you, how do you get that? How do you get that kind of a transition where... There is no such thing as poverty. There is no such thing as a, a lower class of any kind, a working class. And then all of a sudden, that's kind of what carries, you know, the most elite person to be running for president in 1980 to become president. 
I, I can't praise this book enough. So obviously I could keep going, but uh, we've already gone long enough. And hey, I mean, if it, if it's any reassurance, you know, I think Matt and I went way overboard with Diet Nimby on episode one. But hey, two episodes, we couldn't help it. But, <laughs> excuse me, two episodes of Santa Cruz Diet. Um, I don't know, any final words before we wrap up? Oh, no, no, that, that was it. I just, I'm very much curious um, as to where this book's going to take us. And I'm very glad that this was my first impression of it. I'm really, more more importantly, I'm glad that I get to share it with you in this discussion that we're having now. Because... <laughs> I mean that intro just knocked me on on my ass. So, <laughs> no, I, really, really, and just you see it every day in, in my industry, at least. Mm-hmm. And you probably see it in in ways that I won't even understand because I don't know the first thing about your discipline. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think that there are different ways to see people uh, showboating. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's it's. The way I see it from other from other individuals, it's very guttural. It's it's very cutthroat. So, you know, I, I hate to call a spade a spade and just kind of be like, oh, all businessmen are terrible. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I just I I can understand why individuals who think that they're greater than um mm-hmm. fall into this category of just disparaging other individuals who have no business or desire to even be in the negative social social socioeconomic states that they're in, you mm-hmm. know, as if they even had a choice in the matter. All right. Well, listeners, this has been uh, episode one of the Falling Middle Cast. That's been Sebastian. I've been. I'm still Ryan. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, tune in next time. And uh, until then... Do whatever you want if you want to pick up more Barbara Ehrenreich, but obviously read along if you have uh, Fear of Falling. Or if anything, pick up a copy. Hopefully this episode has been enough for you to think, yeah, I'll go out and bo- go buy a copy not on Amazon. And with that, uh, Sebastian, we're going to say bye. It's the big green book, you know, the thing that you're always spending money on. B- big and green, it appeals to the... Okay, I'm done. <laughs> that was his way of saying bye. Thank you for listening to the Falling Middle Cast. Our co-hosts are Ryan Mancini and Sebastian Shug. Episodes are produced by Ryan Mancini and feature music by Kevin McLeod. Check out our main series, Mars on Life, or listen to our other spinoff, Diet Nimby, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.